0: And welcome to Lost in Science for another week. This is half an hour of the best science. You know, humble brag, sorry, but it's true. The best science on your radio. My name is Claire and this week on the show I have a guest in the studio whose job it is to look at diamonds that explode from
1: volcanoes. Is that a thing that happens? That
0: is a thing. That is where a lot of diamonds come from. They come from the deep mantle where they um, where they grow under big pressures and temperatures. Then volcanoes come along and bring them out to the surface, and it's incredible. So um, Hayden Dalton from the University of Melbourne is going to come and talk to us all about that. Stu, what do you have for us today?
2: Uh, well, uh, you probably are aware that For a long time, people have been looking for a male version of the pill, the contraceptive pill, and it's been controversially not successful in anyone's search to find such a pill, partly partly that they don't work and partly that men seem to complain a lot about the side effects.
0: Yeah, we're all still waiting. (laughs) Meanwhile, the world's women wait.
2: Um, But uh, some scientists in India have possibly got uh, a different solution, which is not a pill, but it is a male contraceptive which is long lasting and effective and doesn't require them
1: to take a pill every day and Chris, well, I am also speaking to a scientist um touring Australia next year is theoretical physicist Sean Carroll. You know those of you who get up with your famous theoretical physicists will be aware of him. he's like studies. Quantum mechanics and time and everything like that. He's been an advisor on movies like Avengers, Endgame, this sort of thing. And I'll be talking to him about mostly about alternative timelines and parallel worlds and finding out whether we should believe them or
2: not. Whether Back to the Future Part 2 is full of crap. Let's not not. talk about
1: Back to the Future Part
2: 2, okay? fair enough yeah
0: well there's only one timeline for you right now and that is to stay tuned for the rest of lost in science so on with the show Whether diamonds are forever might not seem like a scientific question, but turns out that studying diamonds that explode from volcanoes give us new insights into the formation of the Earth and what lies deep underground. So to talk us through this multifaceted issue, our very own shiny diamond, PhD researcher and geochemist from the University of Melbourne, Hayden Dalton, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Hayden, tell us, what do volcanoes and diamonds and the history of the Earth back four billion years, what do they all have to do with each other in your research?
3: Well, diamonds kind of are forever. They've been around for billions of years. Um, So in that they kind of act as time capsules for when the Earth was first formed. And then the volcanoes actually tap that part of the deep Earth and bring diamonds to the surface. So the, the volcanoes are like a conveyor belt. Um, they get the diamonds from their deep origins and bring them to the surface where we can um, find them and study them.
0: Are all diamonds located in the deep earth?
3: Um, as far as we understand, they form under high pressure and high temperature, and those conditions are most commonly found beneath like 200 kilometres beneath us. Um, there are some other places where they've maybe formed, like when plates come together, tectonic plates, but generally they're found yeah, in the deep earth.
0: And tell me a little bit about your research. How does your research play into the volcanoes and the diamonds and what are you asking?
3: So I'm trying to find out where these volcanoes form and why they form in these particular locations and when they also occurred. So it takes a a special type of eruption to to get diamonds to the surface because the volcano has to have its um, plumbing system very deep in the earth. So only kimberlites, which is the type of volcano I study, Only those type of magmas have really deep origins that can sort of tap into the diamond source. So I'm trying to work out um, why these Kimberlites or these volcanoes are only found in certain parts of the world rather than um, volcanoes that you might find sort of all over the place.
0: And what have you found so far? Like, where where are these volcanoes that have these sort of, like, deep – I'm just imagining these tap roots, yeah, like, yeah. like, right down, in like, past the crust yeah, and then the into, crust, yeah. like, into that mantle place that we don't know much about?
3: Um, so I'm actually focusing on Kimberlites from Finland, which are kind of quite poorly known because they haven't got lots and lots of diamonds. So there hasn't been much mining activity there. And
0: Kimberlites – Contain diamonds yeah. or are diamonds? They
3: contain the diamonds, right? Okay. Yeah. So they're the. So when the volcano erupts, the magma crystallizes to form the rock, which is called a kimberlite, right? Um, and the diamonds are trapped inside that. Gotcha. So what I've found so far. I've found that the, the kimberlites in Finland are very, very old. So they're about six hundred and fifty million years old to seven hundred and fifty million years old. Quite old. Pretty old, yeah. And I've also found sort of where they've come from in the mantle, just how deep their origins are, which is. At least 200 kilometers um wow very deep so they travel
0: yeah. quite far over quite a long time to get to us or yeah. you know on an engagement ring or you know on a on a tiara or something like that
3: well these these rocks actually are, we think ascend some of the fastest some of the fastest rates known for for volcanoes because if they come up too slowly all those diamonds actually form Go back into like graphite, like pencil lead, right? So we, we kind of expect that these things come to the surface in a matter of hours or days. Otherwise, the diamonds would either turn into carbon or they'd fall out of the magma. So as a result, these things are really really explosive. When they erupt, they form a giant hole in the ground. Um, but the problem is there hasn't been one for about twelve thousand years. So no humans have, well, no modern humans have ever seen one of these things erupt. So not only are they rare in terms of certain parts of the world, they're also rare in terms of Earth's history. Compared to like Hawaii, which is going off all the time, or South America, we have no idea exactly how these things would look at the surface if we were to be around when one happened. All we know is that they're very explosive because of the, the crater they leave, essentially.
0: So can we talk through the process of the diamonds being made? Is it What's the relationship with the explosions that you're looking at?
3: So we... We think um, that most diamonds formed around uh, 2 billion years ago um, because there were these um, fluids in the mantle that had lots of carbon in them, and essentially diamonds are are carbon in in its purest form. And then those diamonds have have sort of just sat there um, quite happy at those conditions, so lots of temperature, lots of pressure, and then at some random time in Earth's history, the volcano comes via those channels and just plucks them up on the way. So... In some cases, the kimberlite um, can be really really quite um, useful and sample lots of diamonds. But in other cases, it can just bypass them completely. So it just depends on what was already there beforehand. Yeah, so the kimberlites can't actually make the diamond. They just sample what's existing. Right. And in some cases, if the kimberlite is too slow, um, like it might get stuck at the crust level or on its way to the surface, it can actually destroy the diamonds too. So that's an ongoing area of research trying to work out what's the perfect formula to get as much diamonds as possible to the surface.
0: Now, these kimberlites and the, and diamonds can actually tell us a little bit about what is in our mantle. Mm, that's right. Is that right? Yeah.
3: Um, I guess because the, the mantle is so, so deep and so hot, we can't get there as humans. And also, the deepest hole that we've ever dug is only about a kilometre deep. So we're talking on the scale of hundreds of kilometres, we have to use some other method to access the mantle to sample it. And so kimberlites are like our our sampling tube where we can sort of tap into the deep mantle and they bring up these samples. So because they come so quickly to the surface, they kind of rip off pieces of the mantle on their way up. Sort of like sampling, taste
0: testing things on the way through. because
3: they're so violent and so fast. They have massive amounts of mantle material we couldn't get any other way until we work out how to dig a very deep hole or you might have seen the movie The Core, where they go into the centre of the earth. We oh, yeah. We can't quite do that yet, unfortunately. I mean, so,
0: Jules Verne, Journey to the Centre of, uh, of the exactly, Earth. Exactly, yeah. Turns out there's dinosaurs down there.
3: Apparently. <laughs> so we're not quite at that level yet. So this is, I guess, our best um, alternative to use these samples that the Kimberlites bring up. And yeah. is
0: there anything that these, these Kimberlites have told us about the mantle that we didn't know before?
3: Yeah, so most recently we've kind of understood that the mantle at least at the deepest levels, hasn't actually changed for billions of years. Whereas previously we we might have thought that over time it would evolve and change with all of the stuff happening at the surface that we see. Um, But these deep levels seem to sort of still maintain a signature from when the Earth first formed, which is uh, pretty intriguing considering it was like four and a half billion years ago.
0: So just like people don't change, the Earth doesn't change either Not after four billion years. Not at its core. Not at its core.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, maybe on the surface, <laughs> just like people.
0: And why is this important to understand?
3: Well, we have to sort of look to the to the past to understand how things might um, change in the future. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, where geology comes in a lot of the time is how can we predict for what's going to happen next, particularly with things like volcanoes and earthquakes and things like that. So we have to look at the old record to understand what might come.
0: You're talking about exploding volcanoes mm. and extremely expensive diamonds. Yeah. Can you talk us through like how do you actually do this research? Like do you get out into do you have to get out there and do some volcano sampling or um crush up some diamonds?
3: Well, I guess because a lot of these um kimberlites have an economic value, usually they're on land owned by exploration companies. So we're very fortunate to be given samples from these companies that are looking for diamonds or have found diamonds, but because there isn't these big Volcanoes, like you might see Mount Fuji in Japan, that nice big peak. We don't really have that um, option to go and sample naturally in the field. Instead, we rely on these companies to kind of dig big holes in the ground. But then, once we have the sample, say whether it's the rock or the diamond, we do actually crush them up a lot of the time, which might seem crazy for di- in the case of diamonds.
0: All in the name of science, exactly. though, right?
3: Yeah. So in, in my case, I crush them up for for chemistry reasons. So so I look at the chemical makeup and how that might have changed between different eruptions as well as looking at how old they are. So we rely on isotopes, which are like a different form of the same element to work out exactly how old these things are. And that does require either crushing them up and dissolving them with um, hydrofluoric acid, which is very strong, like can kill you, Um, pretty dangerous stuff. Or I shoot them with a laser, which is like 10 times hotter than the sun. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) I love that you've made a dangerous research project even more dangerous by using extreme acids and intense lasers.
3: Yeah, so we have to use that really hot laser because it basically turns the rock into tiny pieces of atoms, like vaporizes the rock. And those tiny atoms can then fly through on a machine and tell us what it's made of or how old it is in, in my case. And because rocks are quite hard, you've got to hit them with quite a lot of energy. Which yeah. in this case is a laser.
0: Well, Hayden, thank you so much for sharing uh, your explosive new research. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what diamonds and kimberlites are going to tell us next about our Earth.
2: The first contraceptive pill was available in australia in early 1961 and was originally only available to married women and taxed at a very high luxury tax rate did
0: you know that no i didn't know that but you know it doesn't surprise me no
2: it doesn't surprise me either um and despite the restrictions it was a big step forward allowing women to participate in the workforce as they had reliable control of their own reproduction by taking the hormone-based pills now Dr. Gregory Pincus first figured out the formula for the female contraceptive pill, which was called Enovid, uh, and he was working on this in the late fifties. Um, and he immediately set about looking into a male equivalent. Right. So he, the guy who made the female pill,
0: using hormones. Yeah. So he,
2: it's um, the obvious step, really. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so in 1960, he'd started looking, but he obviously. Didn't get anywhere with that and, you know, eventually kind of abandoned it and went to look at improving the one that he had that worked. Right. Um, But during the 1970s, multiple trials were run using various combinations of hormone-based pills for men, but none have ever gotten beyond the testing phase uh, so far. Um, early research in the area was prompted by Margaret Sanger of the American Planned Parenthood Organisation, and she basically felt that men couldn't be trusted to take a daily pill to prevent someone else getting pregnant. Um, that was kind of her attitude, which, you know, is a, a pretty reasonable position to take if you sort of think Sadly. about
0: it. Yeah, but also give them a choice.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, how about that? Yeah. Um, but... Uh, also, the funding for most of the early research came from Catherine McCormack, who was a wealthy philanthropist uh, and and suffragette originally. Um, and while she and Sanger were not against the idea of a male fertility control option, they felt it was more important for women to have control of their own health first. So that was their focus, and that's why they didn't really concern themselves with figuring out a male pill um, but research has continued and several potential options for a birth control pill for men have been considered. And in testing from 2018 on a chemical called dimethandrolone undecanoate, <laughs> DMAU. Uh, Much
0: easier to say. DMAU. DMAU. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, so that chemical worked and it was well tolerated with air quotes, well tolerated right, by so the... Right, uh... didn't
0: have as many side effects. Yeah.
2: Um, one of the big issues that they'd found with hormone pills for men was liver toxicity. Right. So they, they seem to cause a toxic effect on the liver if you have too high of particular hormones. Uh, but this new DMAU doesn't have that toxic effect, so they're quite happy with that. And all of the other ones in the past had looked at multiple hormones in the same pill, which didn't seem to be helping but this is just one single Hmm. uh chemical um they still say they need to test the pill long term to look for other possible side effects uh and to make sure it keeps working to reduce sperm counts um and the estimated time they've given for this to happen is the usual vague five to ten years until it's on the market, which right. we just hear over and over again in mm. all sorts of research. Basically, it just it's it's a long enough period that you can say, "Oh, it's not even close to being on the market yet." So,
1: so, so what sort of trials have they done? They've done proper like phase three trials, you know, where they do like a large population with.
2: They've they're moving into phase three trials okay. with that uh, DMAU right. testing. But that might all change as a team of researchers in India have a workable option that could be on the market in as little as six months from now. So this is a, a not a pill. It's a different method of, of uh
0: of, of male contraception. contraception.
2: Okay. Um, so rather than taking a daily pill... The new method involves a single injection to the vas deferens right. of a polymer called styrene, malaic anhydride, which inhibits sperm production. Oh. So rather than having to make, uh, having to remember to take a pill every day, this single injection keeps working for up to 13 years.
1: Whoa. Whoa. And That's a, that sounds surprising.
2: Yeah, it is quite surprising, but it's basically, it's, it's a kind of a hormone-releasing plastic. Almost. Oh, okay. So it's a thing that's... So th- kind of like an implant almost, but it goes right, in as a liquid you, and then it's sort of it's in there. Um, but it's also completely reversible at any time.
0: Right. So instead of, um, you know, getting the snip, you could just get an injection and then, you know, whenever you want to reverse it, you can
2: go and get the yeah. antidote type thing. They, they can use a whole bunch of things, including really, really rare chemicals like sodium bicarbonate. Baking soda will we'll reverse it if it's all injected right. in the right in the right spot. Don't, well, try, don't, don't try this at yeah. home. No, obviously. Um, so yeah, thirteen years uh, can reverse at any time. So basically, these Indian scientists are just waiting on regulatory approval, which is you know it's like a political thing. So that could just sort of could be quick or it could be delayed or whatever. But
1: well, they've got to, they've got to show they've done the correct, the yeah. proper studies. That yeah, yeah sort of absolutely. Stuff, yeah. And
2: it's been tested on people, and you know yeah. it's, it's gone through all of the appropriate testing finished phase three trials and basically they're waiting for the indian government authorities to say yes this is okay to use on people in the general population so um basically will make it the first commercially available non-barrier non-surgical contraceptive option for men in history mm. never really happened before Wow. I haven't had any options. So that's, yeah, and, you know, you can see that the Indian population, they're probably a bit worried about how many people get bored in India. Um, Across Australia
3: on the Community Radio you Network, you are listening to a loss in Moment.
2: science. So, look, I guess whether men will be queuing up to have their groins injected remains to be seen, but the lack of alternatives means there's not much competition for this new treatment at this stage.
1: listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and today I have a very special guest. Theoretical physicist Sean Carroll is a professor at Caltech and the author of multiple papers and books on quantum mechanics, general relativity, time and the universe. Actually more than just the universe as we'll soon find out. And he'll be touring Australia next year courtesy of Think Inc. Sean, welcome to Lost in Science.
4: Thanks very much for having me.
1: Now, I have to say, it is a great honor to be speaking with you. I've been following your work for many years. Um, as listeners of our show might know, I am a physicist myself, um, so I'm keen to talk to you about some of these things, but I'll try not to get too um, too nerdy and technical here. <laughs>
4: That's good. I think we'll have fun.
1: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Now, I guess the main thing that I'd like to talk to you about, um, one thing that um, I'm pretty, as far as I'm aware, you're quite a big proponent of, is the... The idea that we live in the multiverse, which is also known as the many-worlds interpretation of quantum physics. Can you briefly just tell us what that is all about?
4: Sure. I should say very quickly that there are two different notions, what cosmologists call the multiverse is really just the idea that very far away, there's different regions of space where conditions are very different, almost as if it's another universe, although it's not really. Whereas what quantum physicists mean by many worlds is that every time you observe a quantum mechanical system, the whole universe, you and everything around you, branches into multiple copies. And there's one version of you that got one outcome, another that got a different measurement outcome, and so on down the line.
1: Right. So these are sort of alternative timelines to what we experience as our reality, is that correct?
4: Yeah, that's right. They're just a whole bunch of different parallel realities, not located anywhere, they just simultaneously exist.
1: And are they real?
4: Yes. (laughs) According to the theory, that's right.
1: Ah. I guess, look, to explain this a bit further, uh, or to explore it a bit further, you were, I believe, a science advisor on the movie Avengers Endgame, which is, of course, you know, the Biggest grossing movie of all time. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but I'm sure everyone's seen it by now. That does involve time travel with multiple timelines. Is that fairly accurate, the way that's depicted, as in if you change an event, then you create a separate timeline?
4: Well, you know, there's a few things to remark here. One is that time travel itself is probably not scientifically accurate. We have no reason to believe that you actually can go backward in time. What they tried to do in the Avengers movie, and I think that they were mostly successful, is to not actually create new timelines. They talked about it, you know, the Sorcerer Supreme uh, talked about all these different bad things that could happen. But in the end, everything was internally consistent. So, you know, Back to the Future is, is not a good model for a time travel movie. I think that Avengers Endgame did it better.
1: Okay, go back to the um I guess the physics of the 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 science of multiple universes rather than the science fiction of it. With this idea, now not everyone agrees with idea of the many worlds interpretation. Can you tell us what are some of the, the objections people have? Like what are some of the problems with this theory?
4: Well, it's not hard to see why people would be skeptical. You know, we're saying that every single time a quantum event happens that, that sort of interacts with the rest of the world, the whole of reality copies itself, or at least, let's, get, let's put it this way, it gets sliced in two, where the two copies are a little bit different from each other. It, it divides. And that's a lot to swallow. Um, so there are other people who try to get rid of these other universes. The argument for many worlds is just that it's the simplest, most straightforward interpretation of what the equations are trying to tell us. So if you don't like the implication that there are many worlds, you need to get rid of them somehow by changing those equations, and people have certainly tried to do that.
1: So as you said, it is it is kind of come out of the equation. So it is is it it's basically a way of um, keeping, I guess, the whole universe quantum, but allowing us to have what we see as a non-quantum world inside that?
4: Yeah, it's basically... Part of the explanation for why the world looks pretty darn classical, you know, classical mechanics is what was given to us by Isaac Newton. So it was the way that we thought the world worked before quantum mechanics came along. And it's a pretty good approximation. If you want to fly a rocket to the moon, you don't need to worry about the quantum trajectory. You can just believe in Newton's laws of motion and gravity. And so that's one of the challenges for many worlds or for any other version of quantum mechanics is to explain why classical mechanics does so very well when objects are big and macroscopic.
1: Okay, now, like I said, I didn't want to get too technical here, but there is something that I've been um, been trying to figure out with uh, the many worlds interpretation that maybe you can help me with. So it's fairly easy, easy to say if you have kind of a quantum event that has two possible outcomes that the universe splits into two options. What do you have if you're measuring, say, a continuous variable like, um, say, the position of of an object might be an electron, and that can have like an infinite number of positions um, throughout space? How does that work in terms of many worlds?
4: Yeah, so there's, this is, number one, a good question. We don't actually know whether or not there truly are an infinite number of possible measurement outcomes you could get for an electron's position or something like that. And this is part of the fundamental question of quantum mechanics that we haven't put enough brain power into really thinking about. But for otherwise, you know, when we do a real-world measurement, we don't measure with perfect precision, right? We don't actually have an infinite number of possible measurement outcomes. That's why it's hard to tell the difference. But if we do, that's okay. Then what you can do is just talk about the proportion of worlds that have different properties. Rather than just counting individual worlds, it's like counting numbers between 0 and 1, right? There's an infinite number of numbers between 0 and 1, infinite number of real numbers. But you can still say that half of them are between 0 and 0.5. That's a very sensible statement to make.
1: It's What you're saying, it sounds like we still have a long way to go in terms of understanding uh, quantum theory. Do you think there's a lot of progress being made? Do you think there is still, or do you think there's still a lot to learn and that we might never fully understand intuitively how uh, the quantum world works?
4: I think there is a lot to learn, but I think that we are making progress. I see no reason to think that we can't understand it or intuitively grasp it. It's just you have to train yourself, you know. Classical mechanics was hard to understand when it first came along. Relativity was hard to understand. There's lots of things that are surprising, and until we figure out the best way of conceptualizing them, we worry that, oh, we'll never get this. But you know what? Eventually, we do get it. I'm not really that worried about that.
1: Now I have a little bit of time left, so I just want to ask you one more very quick question. If you can, I don't know if you can answer this in, say, 30 seconds or so. What is time?
4: You know, time is a way, as John Wheeler once joked, of preventing everything from happening at once. <laughs> we, let, we think of the world as full of stuff, you know, scattered throughout space, And the world happens over and over again. And time is just a label. It's the coordinate that tells us which moment we're referring to when we pinpoint something in the
1: universe. Great. I think that's a very nice and simple answer. Well, thank you thank you very much, Sean, for um, giving us a bit of an insight into some of the the complexities of fundamental physics. Now, as I mentioned, Sean Carroll is coming to Australia next year, so if you do want to hear more and find out a bit more detail about these topics, including the mind-bending many worlds of theoretical physics, you should get yourself along. He will be in Brisbane on Wednesday, the 26th of February, Melbourne on Friday, the 28th of February, and Sydney on Saturday, the 29th of February, 2020. Oh, 29th of February. So it's a leap year, speaking of time. Exactly. It changes year after year. (laughs) For tickets, you can go to www.thinkinc.org.au. That is think with a K, ink with a C. Thanks again for speaking to us, Sean Carroll.
4: Thank you very much.
0: That is all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science a big thank you to our guests today Hayden Dalton and Sean Carroll. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Please get in touch with us. You can find us at lostinsci at gmail.com Find us on Twitter where we're Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR or just tune in wherever you tune in. Again next week when Claire Stew and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.